Excellent, excellent. There are many benefits and advantages to enlisting in the military. Uh, with that comes a stable salary and some health and dental and other benefits. Back uh, during the uh, Desert Storm conflict about almost 25 years ago with Iraq, uh, one Fort Seal reservist was called up and he was interviewed by a television reporter about what he thought about being deployed to the Middle East, to Iraq, and he complained. He said, I didn't sign up to fight, I signed up for the benefits. And so the fact that he was a soldier and had to engage in conflict was quite a shock to the poor boy system. Well, I've got news for you. When you came to Jesus Christ, you came to a kingdom that is onward, upward, and forward, that is engaged in a spiritual battle for righteousness and for purity. Now let me clarify, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual for the tearing down of strongholds and fortresses. And so we use the weapons of holiness and prayer and purity and faith and trust and those things found in our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 6. Somebody has wisely said that when you come to Jesus, He is the end of your troubles. He is, however, the front end of all the troubles, or many troubles that you'll face. And I think that that is oftentimes true. When you do come to Jesus Christ, you end up enraging the kingdom of darkness. And you get a big bullseye on your back. Anytime the enemy can tear you down and cause you to compromise in front of a few or many, he's won an enormous victory to undermine the integrity of the gospel of Christ. Paul is profoundly aware of that in Ephesians chapter 6. And he speaks of this all throughout the letter, in fact, and some of the temptations and the struggles and difficulties that Christians face. The truth is, is that if you succumb you'll pay a price. Now, I don't mean to go Almond Brothers on you, but there is a high cost to low living. Indeed. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay, as one evangelist said. But in this text, in Ephesians 6, Paul explained how the Ephesians could avoid the high cost of low living. Beginning in verse number 10 of Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You can stand in victory over the high uh, cost of low living and everything that attends it. Well, how can I do that? Well, there are several items that arise from the text, and the first is this. Stand in the possibility of victory. Stand in the possibility of victory. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 14 make it very clear it is possible to win the battle over temptation. Now, to some people, that comes as a surprise. Their life, up to this point, has been a constant and continual car wreck and head-on collision with temptation, and they have lost every time. But I've got good news for you. Because of the availability of the power of God and His eagerness to share it, everyone who knows Christ can be victorious in this battle. Now, there's an origin to the possibility. It says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. This is the very might that characterizes God Himself. God is eager and God is generous to share His power with all those who are willing to follow Christ and to trust in Him. This is God's own strength, and quite frankly, you're going to need it. There are some football teams that when they draft a college player, they have a ranking on their list of qualities and characteristics. Not only speed and size and strength, but some of them have a category about attitude and whether or not the draftee is willing to play hurt with the broken finger, with sores and aches and pains. What is their attitude towards playing while hurt? Now, there are some injuries that should put you out of the game immediately like a concussion. But there's some injuries you can live with. In fact, they should increase your determination to be on the field, put on your helmet, get on the front line, and do the blocking that's necessary. And so they rank these players according to their attitude to play hurt. The truth is, every Christian plays or wars hurt with some kind of injury. You and I were wounded because of the fall, and we are in desperate need for outside intervention and the power of God. And so I want to say to you that if you've ever won over temptation, give praise to God. It's not because of our ability, but because of His supernatural intervention. And it could be that your defeats may be able to lay it at the feet of your own self-reliance. Instead of turning to God and bowing before Him and admitting, there's nothing I can do about this temptation, so dear God, I come to you to surrender to you and bow before you all of my decisions and every means I have to handle this, I give it to you. Would you intervene and cause me to be victorious? That is the key to victory. That's the origin of victory. But then there's an outcome, and that is verses 10 through 14. Now look at the repeated phrase here. Uh, verse number 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Then verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. Same Greek word intensified with the preposition. And having done all to stand, and verse 14, stand therefore. 
The outcome is emphasized by the repetition here. Be strong and then stand on four different occasions in the text. You can stand in victory. No one is predestined to defeat. In fact, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And through two millenniums of the Christian faith, many have stood victoriously because victory is possible for all those who will follow Jesus Christ. There is the possibility of victory. Stand in that. But that's not all. Stand not only in the possibility, but stand also in the necessity of victory. Now C.S. Lewis said wisely about the devil and demons that there are two extremes. One extreme happens to be uh, uh, complete disbelief in the existence of the devil and demons. The other extreme is obsession with them. In other words, there are some people in this world that believe that there is a demon in every corner. And then there are some that believe there are no demons in any corner. There may not even be any corners. I think the biblical view is there's probably a demon in every other corner. And I'm not trying to take a middling position, but the truth is is that we um, have got to be very careful of being so obsessed with demons that we do something silly like one person did. They were having a hard time getting their gas cap off of their car to fill it up with gas, and they started cursing demons because they were in the way and hindering their progress. That's silly. That's nonsense on one hand. On the other hand, approaching spiritual issues as if Satan and the demonic kingdom are not involved at all is a very naive approach to the Christian life. There is, however, here the necessity of victory. Now, all of this talk about the devil and demons may call to mind, among those who are 40 and above, Dana Carvey and his church lady about 20 years ago or 25 years ago on Saturday Night Live. And they would say, you sound like the church lady who's blaming everything on the devil. Well, I want to say to you, that's what I'm actually discouraging. But talk of the devil should not be trivialized in that way. And quite frankly, that series of skits by Dana Carvey has trivialized a very important and very serious issue. That's why you shouldn't be watching it. You need to be very careful about that. There doesn't need to be any trivialization of these issues. Now, if you don't believe in the devil, then you're going to have to ask Jesus about that. Jesus was constantly casting out demons from those who were suffering from them. And Jesus actually taught the reality and the existence of demons. Now, so here's what we've got if you doubt the reality of demons. On one hand, we've got the view of Jesus where he interacted with them and cast them out and taught about spiritual warfare. And then we've got your view. Jesus, you. Jesus' belief and personal knowledge of demons and your dismissal. Now, who am I to choose? May I say to you, I want to be as kind and polite as I can be, but you're losing that debate every time. On the issue of demons, on the issue of creation, over the issue of the Bible, every issue found in the Word of God will accept and embrace the view of Jesus Christ and that's where we'll stand. We'll not try to be abrasive or harsh, but you have to understand, when you start doubting and disbelieving, you put us in the position where we have to choose between you or Jesus Christ. Well, He's crucified, risen again, God above all gods, and we'll choose Him. There is the necessity of 
victory here. Now, it's necessary for several reasons. The schemes in verse 11. We do not wrestle, excuse me, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the methodios of the devil. Uh, That's the word wiles or schemes in some translations. The methods of the devil. The devil has indeed methods. And he especially uses the method of vulnerability. Uh, He is more prepared than you are. He is more invested in your defeat than you probably are in your victory. And he has more experience than you do fighting this particular battle and all the other. He's entirely invested in the defeat and the misery of the children of God. You may not have a plan for victory, but he does have a plan for your defeat. And there are several times when he's especially active in someone's life. William Gurnall, the 17th century Puritan, said, There are several places of vulnerability where he especially attacks. One, when you're newly converted or baptized. That is a double invitation for satanic interference. When you are troubled and miserable about something. When, third, you've had a success because you're lifted up and very confident. Then when you're idle and you're not active and busy for Christ or engaged in something worthwhile. Then when you're isolated When you're distant from other Christians, that can happen in many different transitions. Everything from marriage, going to college, moving, whatever. Isolated. And then, when you're dying, He can afflict you with terrible, terrible temptation to doubt the promises of God. This battle is necessary because of His schemes. But then it's necessary also because of His his deception. He wants to convince you that you're battling people and that people are your enemy and He... He uh, camouflages himself behind those issues. That's why Paul said, verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Just a simple way of talking about humans. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against a rank and order of demons. Now, it doesn't get any more specific than this, but there's a hierarchy and a rank and an organization to the demonic kingdom. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Sherry, Michelle, and I discovered this early in our marriage when I started pastoring. We would schedule revival meetings in our churches, and it seemed that we uh, fell into a pattern. It usually would happen that we would have about two revival meetings a year with the guest evangelist. We would pray. We'd pray the stars down. I'd invite the best. We'd go crazy over reaching people and inviting them to come and uh, doing all we could to witness and win people to Christ the weeks leading up to it. But it seemed like the week before the revival would start, Sherry Michelle would fuss at me and hurt my feelings. And I'd do the same thing. And we would go back and forth, and we would have more conflict between us than ever before. And finally, we realized it at the same time. Wait a minute. This is the week before revival. You know what's happening here. We're experiencing satanic interference and aggravation. And so instead, the week before revival, from that point on, we would start praying more intensely for one another and together that God might give us victory. Listen to me. The people in your lives are not your enemy. You're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the demonic kingdom. And Satan wants to disguise himself against human, uh, behind human means to keep you from focusing on the real issue and the real problem. And then there is the 
There is the teamwork that we've talked about here. They are principalities and powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That is to say that there is a rank and order and file and enormous discipline in the demonic kingdom. You, you don't have splits in the rank and order of the demonic kingdom. You don't have them misunderstanding directions and you don't have them misunderstanding objectives in the demonic kingdom. Instead, they work seamlessly like a well-oiled machine in the demonic kingdom. William Friedkin then said, he said, it may be in the 20th century hard to believe in God, but you'd be a fool not to believe in a personal devil. And that comes from the author of The Exorcist. And I think he's right. So if you want victory, it will be because you've embraced the priority of spiritual warfare. And this text, the longest text in the Bible on spiritual warfare, has got to be the kind of text that shapes your life and thinking if you want victory over temptation and demonic interference. Well, he moves on and talks next about the strategy for victory. So stand in the possibility and stand in the necessity, but then stand in the strategy of victory. And what he, propo- what he proposes here is that Paul proposes the armor of God. And this would be something easy for him to imagine. He was chained to one in a prison, and which makes verse 12 all the more remarkable. But then uh, his readers would know an awful lot about Roman soldiers. The Roman Empire was covered up with them. And so they could imagine this armor from head down to the toe. He begins in verse 14 with the belt. The Roman soldier would wear a very large square tunic with a hole in the top through which he would put his head, and it would fall down below his waist, and he would usually let it flow freely. But if he had to march or if he had to run, he would pull the tunic up and tuck it into his belt, and it would give him freedom of movement. Now, Satan will tempt you. Satan will tempt you to attempt to be unreal and to pretend that you're better off than what you are. He will tempt you to keep your problems and your miseries and sufferings to yourself and not unburden yourself with the people of God. He will tempt you to keep secrets because he knows you're no stronger than your secrets. So Paul says here in verse 14, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. And that here is not biblical truth. That will come up in verse 17. Instead, gird yourself with truthfulness, with integrity, with honesty, with transparency. Be transparent. Listen, when you feel like faking it, that is when you are vulnerable. And that is a sure sign when you're tempted to be, uh, when you're tempted to be uh, fake, when you're tempted to keep secrets, that is when the demonic is especially active. And so you've got to have a walk in relationships with others that you can trust, where you can unburden your soul, share your struggles, share your miseries, and share your pains. And that is why every Christian needs a robust, growing, dynamic relationship with a local church and its people. So treat the truth like a belt. But second, treat righteousness as a breastplate. When you are tempted to believe that God's standards are outdated, or his word and his church and his things are no longer relevant, you can know that at that point you are vulnerable to demonic activity. In fact, when you begin to wonder if God's word and the things of God and his church and his standards are outdated or irrelevant, that is a sure sign of demonic activity. 
what Paul proposes here then is a breastplate. Now the breastplate was made up of several smaller plates about the size of your hand that were connected together and placed over the uh, shoulders. Uh, much like a suit of armor, as you've seen before. And it would protect uh, the, um, the Roman soldier, of course. That is how righteousness uh, operates. And we need to value God's righteousness like a soldier would value his breastplate. Now, I've got good news for you. When you come to Jesus Christ as Savior, God transfers the great standard of righteousness that Jesus reached to your account. He gives it to you as a gift. And so you get to appear before God and walk with God as if you have always been righteous. Romans 5 teaches imputed righteousness. Where Jesus Christ knows you don't have any righteousness at all. All you have is faith in His cross and resurrection. And the moment you place faith in His cross and resurrection, He transfers the righteousness of Christ to you, and you get all the advantages of it, and Jesus gets all the miseries of your sins. That's what happens at salvation. And so, let me ask you this. Think of this. Uh, Imagine you're in the mall and you're a billionaire. How would you act? How would you approach spending? And let's say every day another billion is added to your account. How would you act and how would you go about walking through a mall or a car lot or some other shopping center? Beloved, when you come before God, you can walk into the throne room as if you've always been righteous. God knows you haven't been, but He's been so kind and gracious in Jesus Christ, He's transferred all the merits and all that Jesus has earned with His righteousness to your account. Beloved, you are a walking powerhouse of righteousness, and so if you need the help of heaven, God is willing to intervene because with that righteousness, He's willing to treat you on the same level as His own beloved son Jesus Christ who earned it for you he wants you to have the same love and the same favor and the same power as his own son we know you don't deserve it we know I don't deserve it but God in his grace transfers it to your account you can live righteously so righteousness is first a free gift when you repent and place faith in the cross of Christ then it becomes a fervent pursuit And what that means then, very simply, is that you say yes to those things that are righteous and you say no to those things that are unrighteous. So treat righteousness as a breastplate. But then treat peace as shoes, as the Roman soldier's footwear. Verse 15, he says here, Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Whenever you are tempted to question whether you're saved, and you genuinely have been, then you may be experiencing demonic interference. may very well be. Now, you've got to be very discerning about that. Some people doubt their salvation because they've never been saved, and they don't have any fruit in their lives. They have no more righteous fruit in their lives than an apple has pears. And their constant production of their life, ever since they got religious or began to go to church, has been nothing but embarrassment and failure. And so some people doubt their salvation because they've never been saved. But there are some dear souls that have come to Jesus Christ as Savior. They've had a change in life, but they're still struggling with whether or not they're saved. Oftentimes that is interference of the demonic. Now the Roman soldier had shoes, of course. 
And he needed them because sometimes the enemy would place razor-sharp sticks in the ground and cover them up to penetrate his feet and to ruin him good. But these shoes were much like golf shoes, at least on the bottom. They were sandals with cleats on the bottom to help them hold their footing for hand-to-hand combat or to uh, resist the sticks that had been planted in the ground by the enemy. Paul says here that the peace that comes from the gospel of Christ, the peace that you have with God, will prepare you for those temptations. So peace is found in God's promise of the gospel. God says if you repent and place faith in Jesus Christ, He will save and it is impossible for God to lie. If you doubt your salvation, you need to get it settled because as long as you doubt, you're terribly vulnerable to the temptation of the enemy. So treat peace as shoes. Then, verse 16, treat faith as a shield. When you're tempted to doubt God's goodness, when you're tempted to doubt God's truthfulness, when you're tempted to doubt God's relevance to life, then you may be experiencing demonic interference. Uh, the Roman soldier would have a couple of shields. One was a handheld shield that wasn't very large. The other one was about the size of a door. It was about maybe four and a half foot high. And it was made of wood and covered either with leather or some of those metal plates that made up his breastplate. And then it was covered in such a way that when fiery darts that had been dipped and pitched and fired at the soldier would hit the shield, they would be extinguished. And Paul talks about that a little bit later. And so you have a whole army of Roman soldiers, infantrymen, with these shields. They make a tremendous wall for others to follow uh, behind them. That is how faith acts. In fact, we need to value faith as much as a Roman soldier would value his uh, shield. And so we trust God's ways. We trust God's promises. We trust God's character. We trust who God is and what He says in His Word, and that extinguishes the fiery darts of temptation from the enemy. Now, you're going to go through a hard time one day or another. You're either coming out of a difficulty, in a difficulty, or you're headed towards a difficulty, one way or the other. In fact, Jesus was very honest and very real. In John 16, He said, In this world you have tribulation is what he said. But be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. You're going to struggle, but through the years, God has implanted in your heart promises. God has implanted in your heart assurances, and I want to encourage you, when you come upon the day of trouble, the evil day that Paul talks about here, never doubt in the dark what God has taught you in the light. Hang on to His Word. God is always true. Treat faith as a shield. Then treat salvation, in verse 17, as a helmet. Take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. When you're tempted to think, this problem and struggle will never end. Do I have to suffer much longer? There you are vulnerable to demonic interference. When you lose hope, you may be experiencing demonic interference interference. Now the Roman soldier would have a helmet that oftentimes was made of leather and it covered everything from the neck up except the eyes. And oftentimes it would be plated with, again with some of those small hand-sized metal shields and would cover him up. Paul says you need some covering for your mind as well and that is the biblical doctrine of salvation. Now the Bible teaches in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 there are three aspects or tenses to salvation. There's the past element. 
I was saved the day I came to Christ from the penalty of sin. Then I am currently being saved from the power of sin. I think Paul here is talking about the third element of salvation, and that is one day I will be saved from the very presence of sin, either at my death or the Lord's return, one way or the other. There's coming a day when you will no longer have to struggle with demonic interference. There's coming a day when this war will end. This is not a marathon without a finish line. Can you imagine running one of those? I mean, who wants to run a marathon in the first place and then one that has no finish line? Can you imagine that? And, and so what I want to say to you, the problems that you're facing will one day have an end. And there's something you can guarantee about just about every problem that you face in life. Every problem is temporary. Every problem eventually comes to an end. When I'm speaking to someone who's contemplating suicide, I assure them of that. There's an awful lot of other help that's needed besides that, and we try to offer that. But I want to say to you, every problem comes to an end. That's why suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. They are all temporary. If you are contemplating taking your life, don't. It creates more problems. You don't want to do that. Come see us. You're not thinking straight. We want to help. And there are many around you that have gotten help before. I understand, quite frankly, that what you're facing is difficult and hopeless, but you need to know there is victory in the love of God, and it can work for you. It can work. Think of this as a helmet. Then treat Scripture as a sword in verse number 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Spirit becomes active in slicing away objections and slicing away temptations whenever we use the Word of God. Now, when you're tempted to dismiss the Bible's truthfulness or its history or its standards or its accuracy, you may be dealing with demonic interference. God will never cause you to doubt His Word. That is not from God. God attests to His Word. Now, the Roman soldier had a variety of swords. Some were as small as daggers. Others were exceptionally large with three- or four-foot blades. We need to value the Word of God as much as a soldier would value his own sword. In fact, Jesus did this in Matthew chapter 4. When He met the devil... He did not necessarily appeal to himself to defeat the devil in Matthew 4. He quoted three verses out of the book of Deuteronomy whenever he stood about the uh, stood against the devil. Well, how can I know that the Bible is true? Oh, there are many ways. Let me recommend a couple. One, you need to consider every objection that arises to the Bible, whether in conversation or classroom, is something we have been dealing with for 2,000 years and we just keep swatting them away. Whenever a professor in a class presents thought and presents a lecture that undermines the truth of the Word of God, listen respectfully, but do not believe for a moment that it is a new objection. We probably have already dealt with it hundreds, if not a couple thousand years ago. We've dealt with it. There's another side to the story, and usually the other side is never explored in order to intimidate and bully students into dismissing the Word of God. Not all props of that way. Thank God for those who are not. But you need to understand, we've been dealing with these objections for 2,000 years, and the Word of God still stands. 
told an atheist one time, objecting to the Bible, I said, well, here's what's going to happen the day you die or a few days after. Your family's going to have a service. They're going to have a pastor lead the service and pray. We're going to go out to the graveside, read the Bible, go back to the fellowship hall, eat fried chicken and potato salad, go to bed that night praying and asking God for help and mercy and having our evening devotions. The Bible will stand when you're gone from the earth and there's not a thing you can do about it. I don't mean to put this in your face, but quite frankly, whenever we deal with the Word of God, how about a little humility? That may help. That may help us greatly. But then, one of the things I encourage people to do whenever they're uh, struggling with the Scripture and its truthfulness is just read it. And read it with a certain disposition and mood. Approach the Bible with the attitude, I will follow the truth wherever it takes me. And whatever God says in His Word, if there is a God, I am completely open and I will go where truth reads me and then devour the Bible. And what you'll find is that from the pages of Scripture itself, if you're humble and if you're willing to go where truth leads you, before you read it, what you will find is that God will manifest Himself from the pages of Scripture and He Himself will attest to its own truthfulness is what He'll do. There's an awful lot of intellectual resources that are very helpful and useful, but none better than reading the Bible itself with an open heart. So treat the Scripture as a sword, and then treat prayer as battlefield communication. Paul discusses this in verses 18 through 20. And did you notice in verse 18, all of the alls, praying always, with all prayer or all types of prayer, and all types of supplication in the Spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance, with energy and stick to itness, and then supplication for all the saints. Prayer happens to be a battlefield walkie-talkie between the commander, commanding officers, and where you are. When you are tempted to weaken or neglect your prayer life, you may be experiencing demonic interference and temptation. We've got to value prayer as much as the soldier, the Roman soldier, valued battlefield communication. One author penned this poem, Restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian's armor bright, and Satan trembles when he sees even the weakest saint upon his knees. Prayer absolutely intimidates and frightens Satan and causes a red alert High alert to be sounded in the enemy camp in the demonic world. That is why he is always seeking to penetrate it and make it difficult. Hey, let me ask you something. When you're praying, do some of the ugliest thoughts in the world ever come to mind when you pray? Well, where do you think that comes from? Do you find yourself getting distracted and your mind drifting off to many different places? Ladies and gentlemen, Satan is terribly intimidated by prayer, so much so he will interfere to keep it from happening. I would say to you, strain and stretch and struggle all the way through till you say, in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Keep it going and pray and treat prayer as battlefield communication. Now what do I do? What do I need to do? Well, it depends on who you are. If you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ or you're not certain that you have, please embrace the mighty warrior, Jesus Christ. Whenever you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, you receive the victorious King who has defeated the greatest enemy of all, and that is death in the grave. 
and He comes into your life, He resides within you until you see Him face to face on the other side, and He can give you victory. One little girl was asked, now since you have received Christ, how do you expect to handle the devil? And she said, whenever he knocks on the door, I'm just going to ask Jesus to answer it. That's what I'm going to do. And I want to say to you, Jesus Christ is willing to serve you in that way. Anyone that bled on the cross and rose again from the dead is willing to give you the other victories earned by his death and his resurrection. Today, you have the opportunity to open up your heart and life to Christ. We'll have staff standing here, and as we sing in just a moment, you step out from where you are and see a staff member. And share your spiritual need, and we'll be glad to help you. But others of you know Christ, but you need to become part of this church. There is victory in number. In fact, if you could read through the Greek text of verses 10 through 20, you would find multiplied plurals. Paul is not speaking to an individual. He's speaking to a whole church. Look at verse 10. Finally, my what? Brethren. That's plural. Be strong in the Lord. That's a plural command. And then, verse 10, put on the whole armor of God. The word put is plural. All the way through, every one of these commandments are in the plural. God never imagined you fighting this battle on your own. Don't you dare get isolated. Don't, not at all, become part of this church and uh, involve yourself in everything that we are doing. Give yourself completely to the ministry of Christ. No one wins alone and no one wins without a growing and robust walk with a worthy local church. When Benjamin Franklin was signing the Declaration of Independence in his autobiography, he records that as he approached the desk to sign it, he said, there must be no pulling in separate ways amongst any of us in the colonies. We must all hang together. We must all hang together, or assuredly, we will hang separately. And he was entirely correct. And the same is true when it comes to your spiritual walk with 